those curious and yet visibly ungracious people look at them and say, ha ha, I did what you did not do, slacker. Um, so eyes on me, you know, in 20 minutes time, we'll, we'll see what happens, okay? Um, discipleship and you, perfect together. Do you remember that Jersey, ad, I mean, I don't know who remembers Jersey ad campaigns, but Tom McCain, who was a governor of New Jersey, spearheaded what I thought was one of the most effective promotional uh, campaigns for New Jersey, and it showed just all the things that Jersey has, and believe it or not, Jersey does have a few things, um, few, but, and it ended, New Jersey and you, perfect together. And what is he saying? He's saying that we have things that you would want, that you would need, that are good for you, that fit you. And uh, so I'm just, now obviously that ad campaign has long since died and New Jersey has failed to prove with, uh, with certainty that it does have things to offer people. But I will say that for the Christian, what we were talking about today, discipleship, is something that is essential is not optional, but is absolutely fundamental and to the core of who the Christian is. All right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss this out to you from this perspective. I'm going to ask you this question. Are you growing as a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, last week's question of what does it mean to die well, or do you think you will die well? Maybe that's one that you haven't really grappled with in the course of your life. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a question that you should have at least asked, I don't know, New Year's or, you know, times of recommitment and reaffirmation. And some of you, you know, in your daily personal worships, you ask this every day. Am I growing as a follower of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? And that's where we're getting our definition, a very simple definition of the word disciple. A disciple is one who follows Jesus Christ, follows him in the words that he said, in the way he lived, in the desires of his heart. Are you growing? Now, some of you ask that question and you can't tell. You don't know if you're growing. You know, and you kind of look at yourself and you're like, well, day to day, I don't see much change in my life. Maybe it's there, but I don't know. And then you dig a little further. What does it mean? I mean, not what does it mean to, okay, Jesus. It's being like Jesus. Not just thinking what would Jesus do, but also remembering what has Jesus done. So it's about Jesus. But... What is, you know, how do I change? How do I follow Jesus better? I want to know. And for that, I'm going to pull an illustration from our good friends at DC Comics. And where I think the best example in superhero comics there is of what discipleship looks like. Batman. All right. Now, Amanda Raber, when she was here, she said, you always talk about Batman. What about Spider-Man, Captain America, someone? And I'm like, you know, I love Marvel so much better than DC, but Batman shows this better than anybody. Because he has always had Robin 
All right? Robin is a perfect example of some, taking someone all right, and bringing them alongside. Now, let me ask you, what would happen? Okay, let's say, so the, the first Robin, Dick Grayson, he, his parents were circus trapeze artists. I know that this is only really going to hit home to the guys out there, and you women are going to have to really labor. I've got something for you later, so just bear with me and work hard at understanding this, all right? So, Batman. What would happen if he came across Dick Grayson, whose parents were just killed by criminals, who cut the trapeze line at the circus that they were performing on, and they fell to their deaths? What if Batman came to Dick Grayson and said, you know what, there is crime in the world. There's cr there are criminals out there. And they are a cowardly and superstitious lot. And we need justice. So let me give you this manual, all right, and tell you, now, and tell you even where, where the bad guys are. In fact, I'll tell you where the people who killed your parents are. Now, you go and you work with that. What do you think would happen to Robin? Dead Robin. All right? Dead, dead Robin. All right? So, you cannot, taking that equipment, taking that, or not the equipment, but the truth of this bad guy and the concept of justice and even the knowledge of where the people are at does not give him what he needs in order to go and fight crime and defend others and that sort of thing. All right? what, what if Batman went a step further and said, you know what? You're going to need more than this knowledge. You're going to need an outfit. I'm going to give you this snazzy <laughs> uh, yellow cape and red top and green embarrassing shorts. And I'm going to give you, even better than that, I'm going to give you a utility belt. You know what's in that belt? We got batarangs, all right? We've got bat lines. We've got bat radios. We've got a little bat computer, all right? We've got bat lock, lock picks, all right? And we have just bat shields and all kinds of, like, bat stuff. I am going to give you this stuff. And now, go and take care of things. What do you think happens to Robin at that point? Dead Robin, all right? So... He's just not going to make it out there. Not with being equipped with the stuff that even Batman has. What if Batman goes to Robin and says, All right, you know what? Come and live with me in my mansion, stately Wayne Manor, where we have the Bat Cave in the basement. I want you hang, to hang out with me. I'm going to teach you stuff. I'm going to teach you how to fight. I'm going to teach you criminology. I'm going to give you detective skills. You're going to hone your acrobatic skills into a fighting form. You're going to practice how to throw that battering so it doesn't come back and kill you. We're going to spend time together like that. All right? As much time as it takes. And then, I'm going to send you out. Any guesses as to what's going to happen? Dead Robin. All right? Because Robin is a 16-year-old twerp kid. The Joker is this sociopathic, psych, you know, psychopathic maniac. All right? They're all stronger than he is. They've got guns. All right? Batman never gave Robin a gun. All right? And it's just not enough. But what if Batman finally says, you know what? We're gonna, I'm going to tell you what this stuff is. I'm going to give you this cool stuff. I'm going to spend time with you, and we're going to work with all of these things, and then I'm going to go out with you. Well, now you got something. 
And uh, if anyone's worried, no robins were harmed in the making of this sermon. So e even that particular robin, uh, actually, in comics, no one stays dead. And so he, he came back. So he came back a bad guy, but he came back. So Batman's showing us something here, isn't he? You know, he took a disciple. In fact, he's taken lots of disciples because there are lots of robins and there's a couple batgirls and, and all that. And he's taken them and given them what he has out of the passion of what he knows and shares with all of that and then goes out with them to show them and to partner with them in how it's done. Does that make sense? See, that's discipleship. You know, what does it mean to be that disciple of Jesus Christ? I already mentioned that John, Elias, and I, and Brandon in the, in the winter went to Perimeter Bible Church. They're a church that, in no gimmicky way, they don't put this on their website, they don't, they don't advertise it saying that, we've got this great thing. So it's kind of this quiet, you have to know about it to go and hear what they have to say. But it's something wonderful. And at the core... The transformation that they're talking about is discipleship. And they call it life-on-life life missional discipleship. I'm going to take a second to unpack that. Life-on-life. Life. What does that mean? Just like Batman couldn't PowerPoint Robin and give him all the stuff that he needed to, he had to spend time with him. He had to help him mourn and grieve the loss of his parents and all of that. The Christian life is life-on-life. Life. How do we see our Savior? having done it in life. In the Gospels, we see that he spent three years with those who were his disciples. In fact, it was a whole year before he even called them disciples and apostles. He spent that time, even quiet times away. You know, the people who are filling the arenas and stadiums and all that right now with concerts and everything, maybe you think that's the best way to make an impact. And Jesus had those times, but he spent more of his time like this. Because he knew that in order to reach the many, you have to minister to the few. That's life on life. And missional. You're not just giving them you to spend time with because you're great. And that's where it ends. There's a purpose to this. And Jesus gave himself and literally poured himself out for his disciples. That his disciples would take the Savior that they have met and share him with everyone who did not know him, even to the ends of the earth. And so that, beginning with a small number, but then cascading out, like the book of Acts says, in incredible expansion, there are those who follow Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be working through, if you have your outline before you, we're going to be working through an acrostic you have. If you take the first letter of every word that I have on these lines, you get the word teams. And I think a great example of seeing this form, you know, this understanding of how to take people, minister to them and disciple them, is in this popular show, The Biggest Loser. Now, I'm really, really getting sick of reality television. But this one, I can actually tolerate a half hour of. Unfortunately, it's an hour and a half episode every week, so I can handle 30 minutes. So I've got to pick which 30 that I'm going to point at. But why is this show so compelling? I'll tell you after we look at this clip.
first came on the show, I don't even know who I was. I was terrified of everything. I was, I was afraid of working out and I was afraid of getting hurt and afraid of failing and afraid of succeeding. Sarah, your starting weight is 261 pounds. How do you feel now? I feel so good. And this week, I feel like I hit a turning point. I did, you know? It was like I discovered the, the strength that I haven't ever tapped into before. That's why. Oh, I, I feel like I just hit the jackpot, you know? I've learned how to change my fears into more motivation, to push harder, and to achieve all my goals. That's what happens in this Biggest Loser house. And now, now I'm going home. The old Sarah would be defeated. But... I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm going home to win at home and to continue to become who I want to become. Oh my gosh. America, next time you see me, I will be strong, confident, and fearless. This is it. When I started on The Biggest Loser, I weighed 261 pounds. Today, I weigh 169 pounds and I've lost a total of 92 pounds. I used to be terrified of challenges, and now I embrace the challenges. I, I love to be pushed because I know that I can do it. Still a fighter, Kara. We watch that show, not because we're voyeuristic and wondering, wow, what are these tubs gonna do this week? No, it's because we have an eye toward hope. What are we seeing with this show and what do we want to see? We want to see transformation and we're delighted, we're overjoyed because we actually see it happening with these people. But for us, we're not talking so much about losing as we are about growing and maturing in Jesus Christ, are we? You know, just like you know, Sarah would have completely failed if someone just gave her a manual, a book on how to eat right and exercise. I mean, she's already probably been down that road. Just like she would have failed without life coaching and support and accountability. You know, we're, we're gonna be setting up and looking at this paradigm of how to understand growing as a believer of Jesus Christ. And so the first, the first letter of the acrostic is teaching truth. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. You'll see these uh, verses on the back of your bulletin. It says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Truth first. You've got to tell the truth. You've got to teach the truth. You've got to, and we do a good job at this church at teaching truth. Whether it's from the pulpit or in every small group or every Sunday school or youth group event or children's church event, the truth is taught here at North Shore Community Church and how glad I am for that. But do you see how it's not a recitation of facts. What does Ephesians say right here? 
speaking the truth in love. Love means that there's a relationship going with that truth. Love means that there's a care for another person in Jesus Christ that carries that along. And that's how Ephesians, the Paul, the writer, says that we are going to, to avoid the dangerous problems of ignorance, of heresy, and deceit. I'll show you how it works the other way. You know, one of uh, New York's congressmen, Representative Peter King, held um, hearings on radicalized Islam in America this week. And there was a huge, like, just uproar, saying that, oh, that's racist, and oh, that's, you know, just targeting Muslims and everything. But two compelling testimonials came out from that. They were the parents of two American children who took in Islam and its teachings that you have to be violent. And these two went off to slaughter American troops, not on the battlefield, but in cold murder. And the parents were crying out saying, we have to do something. People are taking our children and teaching them these lies. And look how what it, what it has wrought. And it's not just Islam, it's every cult, it's every heresy, it's everything that calls itself truth, but which is a lie, because we know that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and the life. And so, I don't know what might have happened with those two if they had had believers speaking the truth in love to them. That's what counseling is. What Christian counseling is, is speaking the truth in love. And so, what does that mean? That means our, our ministry is not just informational. It's not the same as downloading a sermon off the, uh, off the website. It's not the same as picking up a newspaper and reading the events of the day. It's not informational. It is transformational. And again, that's why it's so exciting when America watches The Biggest Loser. Because we know that that's what we want. We want to be transformed into the image, into the likeness of our Savior. And the true hope that we have is that Scripture says we will be. The day we see Him is the day we're going to be like Him. And so, if we went uh, straight from teaching the truth into telling someone, all right, now go out there. All right, I just taught you the Gospels. We just did the Gospel of Mark in the fall with Christianity Explored, didn't we? And you learned who Jesus is and what he came to do and what it means to follow after him. Now, having been presented with that truth, if I said, now go out there and minister, go out there and plant a church, go out there on the mission field off of that, what would happen? Uh, I should put up the picture of a dead robin, but, you know, maybe it's not as morbid as that. It wouldn't work. It doesn't work like that. You can't just give someone the truth and then say, now go and do everything you ought to with that truth. And we get what Perimeter Church says is disillusioned disciples. You need more. And so that's where E comes in. Equipping. You know, verse 12 
says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, that verse before it gets a lot of attention. It was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And a lot of you are just thinking, oh man, I'm let off the hook. All right, Martin, you you and John go and you do your thing and Bill and everyone. And, and, uh, but actually, if you look at this from a grammatical standpoint, the emphasis isn't on the famous people in verse 11. It's on the people in verse 12. God's people. In fact, the ESV says it this way, to equip God's saints. I like that. I like that better. To equip God's saints for works of service, which ultimately in Jesus Christ is mercy, but it's evangelism too. In fact, all mercy that we do as a church should culminate in evangelism. And so the reason that God in Christ has given all of these gifted people to you is that you might go and represent him. And so that equipping, equipping the saints, what does that mean? Again, and anything that I say that sounds good is ripped off from Atlanta, all right? So just understand that right now. They said it this way. Equipping means managing, massaging the truth until it becomes understandable and accessible and usable. Managing the truth so that it becomes usable to the person receiving the truth. That's what you want, right? You want them to be able to use it. You want to equip them so that when they hear these things and see these things, they say, you know what? Okay, I, can, I see where it can fit in my life. I see how I need this. I see how I can be changed. You know, again, biggest loser. They don't just walk the people on the ranch into the gym and say, all right, have at it, all right? I gave you the, the book and everything, and here are manuals on all of the Cybex machines and all the dumbbells and all the exercises that you have to do. They kill themselves. I mean, some of these people were 500 pounds when they started this show. What do you think one of them would do with the treadmill? But they get them onto it, and they modulate the speed. And they say, now this is how you lift this dumbbell. This is how you use this machine. And they make sure they've got it so they don't hurt themselves. And so our home fellowship groups, they do this. They want to teach you how to do personal worship. You know, I've been to a bunch of the fellowship groups. I can't wait to hit all of them. And I see them in the way that they live and the way that they work. They're encouraging people to look at scripture, to pray, and to worship. And so what's being taught at church is being managed into your lives at these groups. So, you know, these groups, they teach what the truth is. Then they teach why, why it's that way. And then here's how. And that how is such a gracious thing. Now, we don't go straight from there either. There's a step of accountability. And John put it to me this way. John calls it fellowship with teeth. Fellowship with teeth. And, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know if I like my fellowship having teeth. Teeth hurt. But 
let me put the picture this way. We've all, I think, seen this happen where someone misses a Sunday. And then before anyone knows it, they've missed three Sundays. They've missed a month. And then months go by, and we get around to asking, hey, haven't seen this person in a while. And what's happened? You know, we, the body of Christ, we're not holding each other accountable. We were not considering each other and their needs. And in the midst of hard times, how a temptation might be to stop showing up to church and to stop worshiping and to stop looking to Jesus Christ as your only hope in this world. And so that's where you want teeth. You want those dogged teeth to grip on and not let go. That's what we mean by fellowship. That's what we mean by accountability. Chapter 4, verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, I've got another illustration, actually, on accountability. And they're coming back, and they're going to make a mess. But maybe you'll have a better way to look at them, or at least one positive way to look at them. Geese. Geese are just these dropping, just nasty birds as far as what they do to an area. You want to go out onto a grassy field and walk around and lie down in it, and, and you have to ask yourself, have the geese been through? But here's where we see in nature an example of accountability. They don't all fly on their own, even though, you know, just some science biological thing, they've got compasses, and so they understand where, you know, just they have to go in the winter and then where they have to go in the fall, but they don't fly on their own. And they don't fly in a flock either. This is not what you call a flock, all right? Seagulls are useless birds. They fly in flocks, all right? Here, this is a V formation. As an Air Force person, all right, understanding aeronautical engineering, maybe Harry Jung can, you know, just say amen to me on this one as I'm about to say this. This is a perfect formation for piercing the air. What happens is that lead bird breaks up the air, destabilizes it so that the others can fly with greater ease through it. It looks like a wing, or if you look like a, at a plane, if you trace out the edges, that's how it works. That's why it works that way. So there's one laboring for the sake of others. All right, And each person, each bird ahead of the other one is making it easier for the bird behind. But that's not all they do. All right, This makes sense. This other thing that they do doesn't make sense. They honk. The rear geese honk. Now, I was just saying fluid dynamics and air, you know, just, you know, being streamlined aeronautically and everything. When they open those bills, that's not helping. That's drag, all right? On a wing, you have flaps. You know, these slow you down. On a duck, on a goose bill, when it opens up like this, that's just causing drag and resistance. And, I mean, you know, they could swallow something, you know, just, it would be bad. Why do they do this? Pastors love this, all right? The only thing that ornithologists can figure out as far as a reason for them doing it is that they're encouraging each other. 
they're encouraging the goose in front. And so with every honk, they're saying, you can do it. Hang in there. You flap, boy, you flap. Even these birds get what encouragement is necessary for the task ahead. And, you know, again, the biggest loser ranch. You know, that's the reason that they don't set them up like veal cows, giving them each a gym and saying, all right, now you do this thing by yourself. In this particular season, they're all talking about the family that they are, which is ironic because they vote each other off. But, but they say, we're family. We're in this together. And without the fellowship, without the help of their teammates, and without their leaders, their coaches and trainers helping, where would they be? Scripture says, the whole body joined and held by every supporting ligament. You know, there are just more impressive parts of the body. I can think muscles. Muscles, you can, you can do stuff and you can really grow them. In fact, I mean, we've got some guys in our church that really just make me ask, can we be the same species? All right? But, but um, you know, muscles, you can do something pretty impressive with the muscles and you think strength through muscles. And then bones. Bones are strong too. In fact, if you did a bone density scan of Charles Chai's knuckles, one, you would notice that his are flatter than everyone else's. But then if that density scan would show how there's no little bubbles in his bones on his fists or his shins. Just solid rock. All right? So, <laughs> anyway, bones are impressive because these are strong. You can do damage with bones. You can do, I mean, the skull, that's a, that's a big, you know, I don't know if you want that to be a dense bone, you know, but, but um, they're protective. They are strong. But why ligaments? Ligaments are invisible. You can't see them. You don't really see how they operate. But without the ligaments, the muscles and the bones cannot operate for the body to stand. With no li ligaments, you just fall. So even the smallest thing of the body, and how wonderful it is that scripture, that the Holy Spirit gave to us this picture, even a little ligament is necessary for the whole body to be held together. That's the picture of accountability. You think that you don't amount to much in this church. You think that you're a quiet or immature one. And scripture is saying, you know what? You're still necessary. You're necessary. And you know what's going to happen? If you put yourself out there and say, you know what, I need help growing in Christ. Someone else, John said this. I hope, he was quoting uh, one of his uh, friends uh, who's a writer from World Magazine, saying, I hope that you have in each of your lives someone further than you in faith and someone younger than you in faith. That you might always have someone to turn to and then also someone to bring along. And if you think you're weak, you are necessary for that person who will grow by helping bring you along. And with all that, we can get to that fourth block of missions and ministry. Having partnered together in equipping you and training you now, we can go forth together 
And what is this purpose? Works of service that we just mentioned in verse 12. And in 16, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, as each part does its work, referring back to verse 12 of the work. We need to do works of evangelism. I hope that that is inescapable in your understanding. That, uh, that uh, Matthew, the Great Commission that Elias wrote during, uh, wrote, <laughs> read during, during the time of worship, Jesus commissioned them and all believers to go forth and teach and baptize and make disciples of everyone they could. And no one gets a free pass on this one. No one gets to say, you know what? I know someone who's better at this. I'm just going to support them on missions, send them to Cambodia, and that's how it's going to work. That's our partnership. Others might have greater reach. Others might have more frequency of sharing, but all are responsible for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God calls us forth to do this, with each part doing its work. We need to do the work of evangelism. We need to do the work of worship, that we partner with each other, that we might lift our voices and praise his holy name. And do you know that one of our core values at our church is every member ministry. Does that make sense to you now? I hope it makes sense in a greater, deeper way, in a joyful way, that we are in this together. And now, with the truth, and being equipped, and then having fellowship that holds you accountable, and being sent out into the mission field, into the work of serving others in the name of Christ, there should be one response. There should be one thing that happens. Supplication, which is a fancy way to say prayer, but team doesn't work, all right? So with teams, with supplication, you have, Lord, I need you, and I see how desperately I need your people, and I see how in Christ you have called me to do good works and to share the good news. Lord, I throw myself at the foot of your, your son's cross and say, use me, teach me, mold me, and make me your instrument. When John and I and Elias, we went down and we heard all of this, we were just invigorated. You know, it was a work conference, and we were up early and we ended late, but every step we were overjoyed, and we said, I want to bring, each one of us wanted to bring this to our church. And so you're going to see and hear a lot more of this. And fellowship leaders, you're going to hear me, and I want to equip you as best as I can to be able to see this in an even greater way. Let us partner with each other so that with each part doing its part, our church will consist of disciples and disciplers, that we will be one and the same, discipling disciples. Yeah, that's unnecessary R there. Let our church, which this passage says is the body of Christ, be a team of teams. Even what is what we're about to do right here in communion, what does it say? We share one body and we partake of one cup. 
And so in Jesus Christ, we are connected. We are united. Let us encourage each other to love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching. Please bow your heads and let us pray. Father in heaven, we are about to come to your table. And it is a precious table because here we celebrate the broken body and the bloodshed of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, just with your word in our ears, ringing in our ears, take our hearts and transform them. We thank you for this visible and tasteful reminder to go along with what we have heard. Show us Jesus, Father. That is what we desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The elders would please come forward.